Good morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us. Welcome to Desert Breeze Community Church. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis, first book of the Bible, obviously. Some of you know that. Maybe some of you don't. And uh, Genesis chapter 15, this is our Encounters with God series, When Heaven Meets Earth. We're going to talk about believing today. Heard the story a number of years ago. Two nuns were heading to a conference, and on their way they ran out of gas. They looked around in the trunk of the car, couldn't find a gas can, but they did find a bedpan. And so they walked to the closest service station, filled it up, came back to the car. As they were putting the fuel with the bedpan into the car, truck driver pulled off the side of the road to help them. And as he walked up to the car, saw what they were doing, he said, Wow, I wish I had your faith. <laughs> Things aren't always as they appear. And what we're going to be studying here today, how many know who the, uh, let's see, the father of our faith is in the Bible? Anybody? Abraham. And he was also known as, a, as the friend of God. And yet he goes through some major doubts. And we're going to take a look at that. Take a look at your sermon notes. Let me uh, give you a little bit of intro to this teaching this weekend. A faith that has been challenged by doubts, that is a faith that has not been challenged by doubts, is a naive faith that will be defenseless against tragedy and snaring skeptics. A dose of doubt can either strengthen or weaken your faith. It all depends on how you choose to respond. Now, this is what's interesting about the Bible. The Bible neither condones or condemns, but challenges our doubts. Now, if you ever look at the American landscape here, is that you'd find that there's a group of religious people that think of doubt as evil. Maybe you came out of a church that was like that. They said, oh, you shouldn't doubt. It's a total failure. And therefore, religious people will tend to create churches where uh, people can't be authentic with their doubts. And then there's another group of people, this is the other extreme, and it's secular or liberal. They think of doubt as intellectually sophisticated, emotionally mature, and therefore are skeptical and cynical about everything. And so the Bible, the Bible neither condones or condemns, but challenges our doubts. That's what we're going to see in our text. And so I'm, I'm just curious, before we pray and then head into our text, and, and we're going to be looking at uh, the inevitability of doubting. That's the first part. We'll be reading the first eight verses of this chapter. And then we'll be looking at the invincibility of believing, and we'll look at uh, verses 9 through 21. That's how it's split up. But I'm just curious, by show of hands, how many have ever experienced anything that rocked your faith in a major way? Show of hands, show of hands. And did it create a lot of doubt, doubt about the existence of God? Where is God in all this? Uh, yes, of course. And I'm, I'm sure that there are those that are here this morning that are probably experiencing that. And I'm glad you're here. You're here by divine design. God wants you to hear this message and uh, so that your faith is fortified as you're going through whatever you're going through. That He is with you. He loves you. He's going to take care of you. And we can put our hope in him. And that's where we're headed. So would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. And then we're going to dive into our text. It's really a wonderful text. Great, great teaching here this morning that we're going to learn from God's word. Let's pray. Father God, it tells us in Romans ten seventeen, faith comes by hearing. <clears throat> and hearing through the word of Christ. We pray that you'd give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. In the intimacy, greater intimacy of you. Show us wonderful things from the study of your word through the work and the power of your Holy Spirit that will fortify our faith so that we can throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and run with perseverance, the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We pray that you would be most glorified in us as we are most satisfied in you this morning, in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. So let's take a look at this text, starting at verse... This is what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kind of walk through it. Uh, this is a little uh, different than what we typically do. Typically, we'll read completely through the text, and then we'll come back and talk about it. This time, we're going to work through it slowly. 
And we'll work through the first eight verses. I'll give you a little context. Anytime you read a uh, scripture, you always kind of need to know the context as you walk through it. So we'll do that. Chapter 15, verse 1. And after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. This is his name eventually will change to Abraham. But this is uh, the Abraham. First, his name's Abram. So the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Stop there just for a minute. And uh, you'll notice it says, after these things. After what things? <clears throat> after Abram rescued Lot, his nephew, uh, his, uh, Lot and his family and all of his belongings were abducted and, and taken off by four kings. And so Abram puts together an army and goes after him and rescues him. And so there could be this fear of retaliation. So he's dealing with some fear. And so as he's kind of sorting through this, that's what just went down. Notice the Lord comes to him. And these are great words. By the way, these are not just to Abram. These are to us today. In fact, you see this throughout the Scripture for those of us who put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, and your reward shall be very great. Or some translations say, I am your shield, and your very great reward. How many have that in your Bible? Yeah, those are wonderful words. Let's just talk about those words just for a minute. Um, the idea of a shield, that God protects us. Uh, that's so important for us to understand because it gives us a sense of security. We need to know that. We need to live with the reality of that deep in our heart. Not just as a concept, but a reality. If you're a Christian, I guarantee you that there are, there are much more terrible and tragic things that should have happened to you that God prevented that you won't know until you get to heaven. In other words, if you think that you've gone through some pretty difficult times, they're nothing compared to what you could have gone through if he hadn't prevented those things from happening. See, we tend to look and go, wow, where is God in all of this? And little do we know, he's preventing a lot of things from coming into our life. And yeah, he does allow these things, but they're father-filtered. And there's a purpose behind those things. And uh, there's, there's meaning behind our suffering. And it's, it's for our good and ultimately for his glory. And so this isn't just happening by happenstance or, wow, what is this about? Well, how come this circumstance seems like it just came out of nowhere? It's happening. He is in control. He's sovereign. Now, uh, something happened to me, uh, and both Nancy and I, this last Friday. Fridays are, are kind of our... Um, it's our Sabbath day, and we're just kicking back. And so she said, hey, you want to go to, the, to this place called Rusty Saturday? And uh, no, it's not a bar. Uh, how many of you are thinking bar, just like right off the bat? <laughs> Pastor Ray's going to a bar on Sabbath. What's the deal with that? No, I'm not, I didn't do that. Rusty, uh, Rusty Saturday is a, is a repurposed kind of place. It, it's a high-end yard sale, okay. Uh, <laughs> And so she wanted to go there, but before we went there, we went to Dutch Brothers. How many of you ever been to Dutch Brothers? I must be getting way too old because their music is too loud and they're way too friendly. I mean, we drive up, the guy sticks his head in my window. Hey, how are you doing? Everything going good? What are you going to do the rest of the day? It's like, you freak me out, dude. You're way too friendly. You know, back off. And... Uh, so anyway, we're, we're doing that, but while we're out and about, we're driving down the road, and this gal pulls right out and smack dab in front of us. It was all I could do to get the car to stop. And fortunately, Nancy wasn't watching. She was looking down at her phone, and then when she looked up, she's like, ah! And that's what this gal did. She was like, as I'm jamming on the brakes trying to keep from hitting this gal, and... Uh, you could see the, the fright in her face. And it would have done some major damage to our cars. And that's not that big of a deal. But it would have probably done major damage to her and probably us too. It's one of those near misses. Anybody ever experienced one of those? And you go, right at the end of that, I do go, oh, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> thank you, God. And I was going the speed limit, okay? I mean, I wasn't going over the speed limit. And it's just like, but man, it was one of those close calls. This gal, actually, when she got, th- got through where we almost collided, she pulled off the side of the road just to kind of recoup. And, and then I had to clean up the little puddle underneath me. I mean, it freaked me out. My heart was still racing for like 30 minutes after that. Anybody that pulled up on, the side, on a side road to pull out, I was like, ah, whoo. 
I was like, he freaked out. And I was, I knew, I knew. And there's been a number, I was reminded of a number of times in my life when I knew that the hand of God was on me that prevented really terrible and tragic things would have happened in my life if it hadn't been for his hand upon my life. He is our shield. He's your shield. Guess what? You're not going to exit this planet. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you're not going to exit this planet until he says you're going to exit. Until he says he's going to bring you home. Not a minute too soon. Not a minute too late. He's your shield. You can take that to the bank. And there's some unbelievable confidence. But he's more than a shield. He's our great reward. And that's what he also says here. And um, the deepest, now get this, the deepest and most enduring happiness is not, from, is not found from God, doesn't come from God, but it's in God. It's in God. Do you hear me? There's nothing in creation that can satisfy you like the Creator. I'm convinced that that's what he says. I am your great reward. So he's going to bring him great reward. There's no doubt about it. There's unbelievable reward that comes to our lives as a result of walking with him and knowing him. But he's our great reward. Having him in our lives. And that is pretty amazing that we have him. And that's what he's, he's reaffirming to him here. And so, so he's got some fear. Maybe if you have some fear, those are two, two things that you need to keep in mind. That he's our shield, he's our great reward. And you would think, God shows up, says that to you, you'd have a lot of confidence and your faith would be soaring. Yes, praise God, let's take on the world. You think Abram's feeling like that? No, look at verses 2 and 3. He's not just doubtful, he's got adamant doubt going on in his life. Look what he says. But Abram said, Oh Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Okay, okay, that's, uh, got, got that, but, but he doesn't stop there. Look at verse 3. And Abram said, Behold, you have, you have given me no offspring. Okay, we got that, Abram. It's kind of like he's repeating it. And he says, You have given me no offspring, and my member of my household will be my heir. Now, here's the point. Back in chapter 12... God showed up, called Abram from his family, from his heathen uh, family. That was, they were godless, and he called him out into a relationship with him. And he said, I'm going to give you lineage and land. I'm going to bless you. And, and by the way, part of this lineage, pretty amazing, the lineage is going to come the Messiah. Remember last week, Genesis chapter 3, the, chapter 3, verse 15, Adam and Eve... Uh, messed up royally and guess what God stepped in and you have the proto-evangelium the very first gospel message what, is it, what does he say the seed of the woman the lineage of the woman will crush the head of the serpent though the serpent will, will, will bruise his heel is what it said so what is he saying that there's going to be a Messiah through this lineage and so now you're seeing this being carried out through Abram and he's saying hey I'm going to bless you with lineage and a land. By the way, that Old Testament picture is a New Testament principle of our life, our fullness of life in Jesus. Lineage means fruitfulness. He wants your life to be fruitful, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and also that your life would make an impact in other people's lives, that they would look at your life and see the joy that you have in God, and they would want what you have. That would be fruitfulness, but also fulfillment. The land, land of milk and honey. There's a place of fulfillment in knowing Jesus and walking with him and experiencing him. That's the idea here. And so Abram's saying, hey, wait a minute. My, in fact, what's interesting about this story is that it seems like it's an impossibility because his wife is beyond childbearing years. And he's saying, hey, you haven't given me a son. I don't have. You, you promised me lineage and land. <laughs> it's not happening. So he's got tons of doubt. It even seems to be going against the odds, against the facts. And yet, notice how God responds here to him. Verse 4. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said... It's almost as if God took him by the shoulder and just says, Hey, come on, let's walk outside. So he went outside. And he says, Hey, take a look up in the sky. Now try to count the stars. And then he says... He said, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. He's like, yeah, I can't count. Exactly. So shall your offspring be. 
Isn't that amazing? That's what he says. He says, so, so he's, trying to, he's trying to say, hey, this is, this is what I'm going to do. He's making a promise. And um, let, me, let me finish reading verse 5. So look toward heaven, number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. By the way, I don't know if you know this, but there's probably about a billion people on this planet today that profess Christ as Savior. That's a lot, isn't it? So, so part of this whole idea of this lineage through the Messiah who we put our faith in and uh, we've got people who call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved. Notice his response. And um, this is an amazing verse. Verse 6 is uh, certainly the bedrock of Christianity. Look at what he says in verse 6. This is uh, Abram's response. And he believed the Lord... And he counted it to him as righteousness. So here's, check this out. Everybody look up here. You got to get this. Okay. If you ever ask me, uh, how do I become a Christian? And how do I know that I'm going to go to heaven when I die? And how can I have a relationship with God? It's answered right here in verse six. He's answering it for us. And he believed the Lord. He believed the promises of the Lord. And he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, here's what's interesting about what he's saying here. This is the, as I said, it's the bedrock of Christianity, but it's counterintuitive to human nature because what we often think, it's not only counterintuitive to human nature, but it's the antithesis of every major religion and cult of our world today because it's all about, hey, if you do this, if you live according to the standard, if you step up and clean up your act, then maybe somehow you can have a relationship with God. That's not what it's saying. It's not saying obey and then God will bless you. It's saying, hey, guess what? I'm going to bless you. You put your faith in Jesus. You put your faith in. By the way, they got saved by looking ahead to the promise. We look back to the promise. The promise is Jesus. And so it's not based on what we do. It's based on what, on what he's done for us. This is a fascinating, this is amazing. This is perhaps the most important verse. This same verse is found four other times in the New Testament. You can look that up and you can find a little more explanation on these. I think the fourth chapter, in fact, of Romans talks about it twice. It's talking about Abraham, the father of our faith. He believed God and God said, okay, you're right with me. You're in right relationship with me. I'm going to be with you forever. I'll never leave you or forsake you. You have all of my blessing It's not based on your performance. All you did was put your faith in what I was going to do and what I've done, and therefore you're in. That's amazing. That's unbelievable. I mean, it's the antithesis of every other major religion and cult that says, hey, you gotta, you got to work, you got to do this, you got to do that, and then maybe somehow God will accept you. No, 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 no. God accepts you, and then you'll work. See, your obedience and your work and and your labor comes out of his amazing love and blessing to us. A couple verses I put down on your notes just to help you understand that. After the chapter 4, when the Apostle Paul talks about Abraham and his faith, he starts chapter 5, verse 1. We talked about this verse a couple weeks ago. And he says, therefore... When you hear the word therefore, it's talking about the previous section. So therefore, since we have been justified by faith... We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What? Yes, there's no barrier between you and God. You have everything you need in Him. Uh, there's another great verse that helps us to understand that. It's 2 Corinthians uh, 5.21. And it says this, That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God, the righteousness. So here's what it means by righteousness. It means a right relationship with God. It means peace with God. It means all of the acceptance, all the security, all the significance you'll ever need that far exceeds any acceptance, security, or significance this world could ever give to you. It's stunning. It's amazing. Oh, by the way, when, when Jesus, uh, a couple times, he was on this earth, and uh, he, one time when he was baptized, the other time when he was on the Mount of Transfiguration, his father spoke, and his father said this. He said, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Those words, those words that he said to Jesus, those are ours. See, Jesus took our, our bad record, and that was nailed to the cross, and we got his record. And so, in essence, that's what he's speaking to us. When we put our faith in Jesus, we have that. We have his acceptance. We have his security. He is our 
He is our, what did, that, what did it say here? He is our shield and great reward. Never to be taken from us. Because it's not based on your performance. It's based on faith. And we're going to talk about faith, what that looks like and what that is. But that's, that's amazing. So, so, and he believed in the Lord. He believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Okay, I think you got that point, didn't you? That whole idea there. I kind of, I tried to hammer that. Tried to work it a little bit there, but I think you got it. So, uh, let me see if there was anything else that I needed to say on that. I don't think so. Okay, so let's, let's go on. So, okay. Notice what God says to him, verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land. So now he, he first talked about lineage. Now he's talking about land to give you this land to possess. Now you think, okay, okay, yeah, Abram, you're ready to go, dude. You're ready to take on the world. You can face anything. Yeah. No. No, look at verse 8. He's still struggling with doubt. Oh my goodness. He's just like you. <laughs> that sounded kind of wicked, didn't it? Uh, I didn't mean that. He's just like me too. Oh my goodness, how I struggle with doubt at times. I mean, I can have all the reassurance and affirmation and read the Bible and be in, you know, on a service like this and be all excited. And I leave and five minutes later, I'm just like, Abram, look at verse 8. But he said, oh Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He didn't say it quite like that probably, but... There's a little struggle. So here's what's interesting about this. I don't, do you notice that, first of all, he's, he's just kind of doubting God. He's like, I'm not really sure if I can trust you. Okay, okay, God, no, okay, I know that I can trust you, but I'm not really sure that I can even trust me. Did you notice that? So he's really dealing with, so oftentimes when you look at doubt, the doubt really comes in kind of two, in kind of two forms. One is like, can I trust God? Okay, okay, God, you reaffirmed that I can trust you, but man, I don't even know if I can pull this off. How am I going to possess this land? I mean, if you have a land for me, I don't know if I can pull this off. I don't know if I can really enter into all that you have for me. So the doubt comes, not only do we, we not trust God, but we also don't even trust ourselves. I can't do this. Now, that's really important to think about. I know all those promises, but why do I keep screwing up? I don't know that I can pull this off. No, you can't. And you won't be able to. We're going to talk about what really the solution. We've got to stop there because I need to give you some fill in the blanks. And we're going to come to it because, man, his solution for Abram is a wonderful solution. It's his solution for us too. So let me give you some fill in the blanks here. So here we go. Verse 1. Doubt will always be to some level in everyone's life. You're going to always struggle with doubt. That's just a part of life. Hey, the book of Psalms is, is a packed full. That's why I read five Psalms every day. I read five Psalms this morning. Today was the ninth, and I read... Uh, Psalm 46 to 50, something like that. 5, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, oh, 40 to 45. That's what I read. Yeah, that's what I read. I had to count it out. Hope it doesn't go beyond my five digits up here. I'll take my shoes off to start counting there. But, but uh, I read those this morning, and I'll tell you what. It's, it's really interesting to see the psalmist struggling with doubt and fear and anxiety and all kinds of stuff. He's, just, he's working with God through that. And, and by the way, let me give you another example of this. How many would say that John the Baptist was probably a pretty top-notch dude that probably had a lot of faith and really was like... He, I mean, he was the one that was the forerunner of the Messiah... Would you guys agree with that? Show of hands. He's John the Baptist, if you're familiar with this story. Let me give you a little bit of his story. You probably didn't know this, but John the Baptist, John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist was the one that said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world when he saw Jesus. And then it says in John, uh, a little bit further down in that same chapter, John chapter 1, verse 34, he, he said about Jesus, I have seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. Well, wow, those are strong proclamations of faith. And then, a little bit later on, guess who gets thrown in prison? John the Baptist. Guess who's going to lose his head? John the Baptist. Not a good thing. Do you think he might have had a few doubts while he was in prison? You know he did. Listen to this. Luke chapter 7, verse 20. He sends a person to go check with this Jesus, and he asks this. Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Wait a minute. 
Time out. I thought you were the one that was saying, he's the dude. He's God. And now you're saying, are you God? I'm not really sure. And so he sends somebody to find out. Now, here's the deal. That's what always happens when our back is against the wall. When we get the, the bad diagnosis or whatever it might be that we're facing and the struggle of that is that we really, it, it, it challenges our faith. In other words, do you believe that God, that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he is with you never to leave you or forsake you? Do you believe that his uh, steadfast love is better than life? I mean, th- those are the questions that begin to come up in our lives as we're facing hard times. That's what we have happening with John the Baptist. And notice how Jesus responds, verse 22, Luke Chapter 7, Jesus responds, go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy have, are cured. And the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. And notice what he says about John the Baptist. Verse 28, and Jesus compliments John. I tell you among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And that was, that was when he's, he's, like, he's battling doubt. Wait a minute, I, I said that you were the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and yet right now, I'm not really sure. I'm, I'm kind of working through this. I'm working it deep into my heart. And yet he says, wow, there's, there's no one greater than John. So what are we saying? Back to, the, back to the notes. So basically what we're saying, doubt will always be to some level in everyone's life. Uh, C.S. Lewis says this, Now that I am a Christian... Now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. But when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. Isn't that interesting? So whether you're an atheist or you're a Christian or whatever, and it's because we live life based on probability, not on absolute certainty. I mean, even in our court of law, when they're asked to make a decision, it's not... It's not beyond a reasonable, or, or it, it's, it's not beyond a shadow of a doubt, but beyond a reasonable doubt in which they are to make their decisions. Because you're going to have doubt. There will always be a little bit of doubt, reasonable doubt. It's, it's part of life. Here's the next one. The opposite of faith is not doubt, but unbelief. Doubt is not a denial, but indecision between yes and no. And, and by the way, when someone says, I don't believe in Christianity, uh, just because someone doesn't believe in Christianity doesn't mean that they have no belief system. Everyone has a belief system. Uh, all, all that says is that you have an alternate belief system. And uh, you can't avoid giving yourself to something. Everyone has a belief system where you can't exist. You have to have a sense of purpose. What gets you out of bed in the morning? What drives you in your life? What, why do you exist? It's fundamental questions of life. Why are we here? What is life all about? You have a belief system. It might be by default what you were taught growing up. But, but here's, the, here's the issue. In fact, uh, I like what Tim Keller says. He says, just as believers should look for reasons behind their faith, non-believers should look for reasons behind their unbelief. It's inconsistent to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that's often what happens. So oftentimes people will highly scrutinize Christianity, and yet they won't even look at their own belief system and say, hey, wait a minute, it doesn't carry much weight compared to Christianity if you really looked at it. And that's, that's often what I do. When I'm going, when my back is against the wall and I'm kind of working through the options out there, certainly, I mean, I've looked through the options. There's no better option than putting your faith in Jesus. That's just, that's all there is to it. The sixth chapter of John, you see the disciples kind of grappling with that. People are leaving left and right. Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you guys want to go too? And Peter says something really profound. He goes... Uh, almost like he scrolled through the object. Oh, we don't know where to go. You're the only one that has the words of eternal life. In other words, we've never been more alive than when we put our faith in you. That's what he's saying. Pretty amazing. And so I oftentimes will kind of like, okay, what are my options here? They're not very good. I'm sticking with Jesus. <laughs> A whole lot better. Because the Christian faith, it is historical. It's evidential. It's factual. My goodness, there's enough. If you do some research... Don't check your brains at the door. Look into it. There's plenty. It carries plenty of weight. But there's more that I do than that as we will work through. There's something that I'll keep coming back to, and we're coming to that. Let me continue on here. Number three, doubt is asking honest questions. Unbelief is refusing to hear the answers. And really, when people, you're dealing with that, and that's what he says here in John 3, 19. He says, here's the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. 
The big issue here is that you need to know that no one is neutral. People know instinctively that if Christianity is true, they will lose control and not be able to live any way they wish. And what they're doing is if, they, if you reject Christ, you're doubting his goodness. You really think that you're going to find a better life out there as opposed to following him. That's just crazy. That's asinine. doesn't make any sense, but that's what it is. You're, you're doubting his goodness. But that's the problem is that we just don't want to give up control of our life over to him. We want to be in control. We want to be God. And that's what he said. That's what Jesus said. In fact, this is what I found interesting too. Is that, and, I, and I saw this. I saw this with a, a number of non-Christians, but I saw this with a number of Mormons as I was trying to convince them that I believed that, uh, that much of what they embraced was demonically inspired. They didn't like that. But uh, it's probably not a nice thing to tell someone. Ah, oh, those are demons that are telling you those things. Uh, I don't usually say that right up front. I usually try to cultivate relationship with them. And then I tell them that. But... Uh, but this is what I would oftentimes, the kind of response that I would get from them was this, is that they would uh, say, they wouldn't say this, but they would kind of act like this. Don't confuse me with the facts I've already made up my mind. My grandparents were Mormons, my parents were Mormons, and bless God, I'm going to be a Mormon. It's like, so you're just going to check your brains? And that was, that, that's what it was. Is this, I'm showing you something that's factual. And I would do that with people, and not until the Holy Spirit really works in their heart. Will they be able to, to actually see that? Doubt is asking honest questions. Unbelief is refusing to hear the answers. Number four, Christianity is coming to God with all of my questions, doubts, and fears. Struggling with God over the issues of life does not show a lack of faith. That is faith. That is what develops, that's what develops your faith. This is what Abram is doing. He's coming back to God. He keeps coming to God. But God, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? That's faith. Faith is not the absence of questions, doubts, and fears. Faith is bringing your questions, doubts, and fears to God. I love uh, what Gary Parker from his book, The Gift of Doubt, what he says, if faith never encounters doubt, if truth never struggles with error, if good never battles with evil, how can faith know its own power? In my own pilgrimage, if I have to choose between a faith that has stared doubt in the eye and made it blink, or a naive faith that has never known the firing line of faith, I will choose the former every time. Now, we've got to move to the invincibility of believing, and we've got to walk through the text here. And this is, this is what, how he answers this. This is how God responds to him as he's struggling with this doubt. Now, if Abram had denied his doubts, he wouldn't have... We wouldn't have the second half of this chapter. And, and this is, there, there's probably no greater uh, chapter in the whole Bible talking about grace and the gospel. It is utterly stunning how God deals with this doubt. And uh, let me begin with verse, verse 9. And he says, but, but he said... Oh, verse, that's verse 8. Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer three, uh, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, um, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Now stop there just for a minute. And you're going, what in the world is this all about? How's he responding? He's getting these animals and cutting them in half? How is that supposed to help his faith? Well, you've got to know a little bit of the background here. Um, Abraham or Abram lived in an oral uh, culture, oral or a storytelling culture. They made contracts by acting them out. They didn't have paper or anything like that. Like when we signed contracts, they didn't have that, so they had to act them out. And what they would do is that they'd cut an animal in half and walk between the pieces. In essence, when they did that, they were saying, if I don't fulfill my vow according to this contract, may I be cut up like this animal. Can you imagine if we started doing contracts like that these days? You're going to do my plumbing? Okay, let's go out in the backyard here. And uh, I got an animal that I cut in half and we're going to walk between. Well, you're going to do what? You did what? And may what has happened to this animal happen to you if you don't follow through with what you've asked, what you've said you're going to do. Think people would follow through with their commitments? Yeah. I mean, so they're, they're pretty, this is, this is covenant. Uh, and actually, they would, it was referred to as cutting a contract or cutting a covenant. 
is what this is. And so notice this, verse 11. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. That's, that's kind of interesting that that would be placed in there. And we're going to talk about that. Verse 12. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, uh, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. That's also significant too. It kind of talks a little bit about the darkness that came down around the cross when Jesus was on the cross. Then the Lord said to Abram, now for certain... Now for, know for certain that your offspring... So he begins to prophesy about his lineage. Your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. And as for yourself, you shall go to your forefathers in peace. And you shall be buried in it. In a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, now check this out, this is really phenomenal. And what he's describing here is really the presence of God, a smoking fire pot. This is what is going to be seen on Mount Sinai, this fire and, uh, and this uh, smoke is seen in Mount Sinai later on, and so it's, it represents the very presence of God in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. So God is walking between these cut pieces, and notice this, verse 18, and on that day the Lord made a covenant, literally cut a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Catamanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Raphim and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Girgashites and the Jebusites. And this is the word of the Lord. So here's a couple interesting things. Notice who walks between the pieces and who doesn't walk between the pieces. Now, when you cut a contract, a king wasn't typically required to walk between the pieces. He had nothing to prove, but a peasant would have to walk between the pieces. But you'll notice who walks between the pieces and who doesn't walk between the pieces. By the way, remember what we said? He was doubting, can I trust you, God? And oh, by the way, can I trust me? And God deals with both of those big questions. And, and this is a one-sided covenant. God walks between the pieces. And this is, in essence, what he's saying. That if I break this contract this covenant may i be torn to pieces oh by the way abram if you break this covenant may i be torn to pieces and he was on the cross for you and i and guess what we have broke that covenant over and over and over again and yet he paid in full when jesus was on the cross it's he said it is finished it is paid in full that's, that's stunningly beautiful. You mean to tell me that regardless of what I've done, I have access to the throne room of God? Yes. And he will be with me forever, never to leave me or forsake me? Yes. Oh my goodness, I want to live my life for him. Yes. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to put him on display? Why wouldn't you want to continue to have that relationship? Because his love is better than life. There's nothing in this world better than that. And that's, it's, it's a one-sided Covenant. God is saying, I'll be torn apart if I fail, and I'll be torn apart if you fail. And he was torn apart on the cross. This is, I mean, how many years before the cross is this? So it's, it's projecting, it's looking ahead to the cross. It's giving us that imagery. And so let me give you some fill in the blanks here. So number one, my faith will always be opposed. Therefore, I must fight the good fight of faith. The birds of prey, they come down. Verse 11. We have an adversary. He's going to do all he can to keep the gospel from going deep within our heart. Matthew 13, 4. 4 and 19 talk about that. Remember the parable of the seed, the sower, and the soul, uh, the seed, the sower, and the soils. Soils represent our heart, seed represents the gospel. And so the seed that was sown on the ground that had been pounded down, it was hardened ground representing a hard heart. The seed fell on the ground, and what came along and picked the seed off? Birds, birds, actually. Good, good try. You're wrong, though. But you tried, though. Yeah, you Good man. Oh. <laughs> it's actually the birds. The birds, and the birds represent who? 
Satan, yeah. So demonic, there's this demonic activity. There's demonic activity. Whether you believe it or not, whether you realize it or not, he's going to do everything he can to keep you from believing this covenant, from understanding the gospel. The freedom, oh my goodness, the life-liberating, soul-satisfying covenant that he has given us. That we have everything we need in Jesus Christ. And, uh, and so we've got, to, we've got to fight the good fight of faith. By the way, you want to come back next week. Because we're going to talk about wrestling this deeper into our heart. Because we're going to uh, look at Genesis 32. Uh, Jacob wrestling with God. Because there's a wrestling match that we have to kind of, kind of get this. We've got to get this stuff down in our heart. We don't often live with it deep in our heart. And so we're going to talk about that next week. Number two, God's eternal plan is more comprehensive than my finite mind can understand. Therefore, I must walk by faith and not by sight. I know that there's things that happen to you in your life that you can't make heads or tails out of. But guess what? You can trust his perfect love, infinite wisdom, and unlimited power. He's working in your life. Abram doesn't have a clue about what he just prophesied here. What? 400 years? My people are going to be in bondage? And what? What is this all about? He doesn't know what he's talking about. Neither will we. But we've got to learn to walk by faith, not by sight. Um, number three, it's not the strength, but the object of my faith that saves me. Therefore, I must fix my eyes on Jesus. It's not the strength, but the object of my faith. I mean, you hear a lot, there's actually false teaching out there that tends to Put the blame on you because if you don't get what you want from God, it's because you have a lack of faith. Let me ask you this. How much does the Bible say how much faith you need to have to move a mountain? Anybody? Well, there you go. Can you even see a mustard seed? If I had it in my hand, you wouldn't even be able to see it from where you're sitting. So mustard seed faith. That's all that's required. So what is it saying? Little bit of faith in a big God. If you're falling off of a cliff, God forbid if that should happen... You're falling off a cliff and you look up and you see this big branch off the side of the cliff. And that branch is strong enough to hold you. And if you have very little faith, but you reach out and grab it, it's going to save you. But if that branch can't hold you, it's a weak branch. All the faith in the world is not going to keep you from that fatal fall. You can have all the faith in the world, but, you, but see, it's the object. It's the object of your faith. So, so what does that mean? How do you grow in faith? You focus on, your, on the object. You get to know the object. And this is what you need to know about the object. The object of our faith is that you'll never meet anybody like Jesus. <laughs> never. There is no one like him. And the more you get to know him, the more you will love him. And the more you love him, the more you will trust in him, the more you will rest in him. You want to grow in faith, get to know him. Here's the next one on your notes. Number four, faith is, this is what faith is. You can see this in Hebrews 11, the whole chapter is the faith chapter. Faith is truth entering the head, truth about Jesus, who Jesus is, what he's done, igniting the heart. Some of you, your hearts are being ignited this morning as I'm talking, and then outworking through your hands. And as you begin to live this out, it's going to make a difference in how you respond to the circumstances of life. Because you know he's with you, he's working in behalf of the circumstances of your life. Therefore, I can't... I can expect to eventually, for it to eventually change everything about me. Hebrews eleven six it says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Faith is being sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see. 11, 1. 6 is, whoever, Without faith it is impossible to please God. Whoever comes to him must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. So faith is more than just agreement with facts. It's truly an appetite for God in the heart. Faith isn't a, isn't a feeling or a force or a formula. It's fellowship with God. It's knowing Him. Here's the last point. Last point, and we're going to prepare our hearts for communion this morning. By faith, my faith is in God's promise to unconditionally bless me because He has unequivocally earned my trust with His blood. And that's what we see as He's walking through the pieces. In essence, He's saying, may I be torn to shreds if I violate this vow and if you violate this vow in which we have, and he was, Isaiah 53, 8, it says about the suffering servant, Jesus, using covenant language, he was cut off from the land of the living as he was hanging on the cross. Mark 15, 33 through 34 says, at the sixth hour, at 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land, just as darkness came over Abram. Romans 8, 31 and 32. 
2, it says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. Won't he also give us all things? Won't he take care of that? Here's, so this is what I do. So I've, I've scrolled through the options, and I go, Man, there is nothing that I've never been more alive when I follow Jesus. And I've looked at, at all the different options out there. I've, I've studied other religions. I've looked at different things that try to make heads or tails out of life. And I've never found the life quite like the life I have in Jesus. But this is what I always go back to. When my circumstances just seem a bit chaotic, I always go back to the cross. Because what he's saying here, that if he took care of our worst problem, what was your worst problem? You're going to be eternally separated from God. So he took care of that worst problem. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? In other words, if if he took care of your worst problem, he'll take care of all your lesser problems. Do you hear that? That's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion. We're going to take a look at these communion elements. And we're going to say, God, if you took care of my worst problem, and now I have peace with you through Jesus Christ, you're going to take care of all my other problems. I always go back to the cross. He shed his blood for us. Oh, my goodness. Anything compared to that is quite less. So he'll take care of you. Let's, let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. God, as we take communion here now, may we be reminded... Maybe we be reminded that, that you are for us and not against us and you took care of our worst problem. Therefore, we can trust you with all of our lesser problems and issues in this life. God, we love you. As they pass the trays, just uh, hang on to the cup. They're double cupped. You'll have both juice and then underneath that cup will be the bread. Just hang on to it and we'll, we'll walk us, I'll walk us through the process. If you're not a believer, just let it pass. But guess what? You could become a believer today. What you need to do is... Uh, just do what Abram did right here in verse 6. He believed. Put your faith in Jesus. Say yes to him. Yes to the fact that he died on the cross for you and now you have access to the throne room of God. You can have a relationship with God and God will count that to you as righteousness. God, thank you for that promise. And if you do that this morning, feel free to take communion with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's, here's the point, I mean, of this whole message is that if he, if God didn't withhold his very own son, which that in itself was, is mind-boggling, it's just pretty amazing. There's no other belief system that would say that the God of the galaxies would come down and rescue us. 
That's what he did. If, if God didn't withhold his very own son, will God withhold anything we need? No. He loves us. If trust must be earned, it does. If trust must be earned, hasn't God unequivocally earned our trust through the cross? Yes. Yes, rest in that. Rest, rest in that. Some of you need to rest in that. Some of you are just, ah, too much stress, too much anxiety, too much worry. You can rest. You can rest this morning in him. He loves you. He loves you. Let those words just bathe over you this morning. There's no one that has ever loved you like Jesus. He is here this morning. He's speaking to you. He's drawing you closer to him. Getting to know him will give you greater, greater faith. He will not leave you or forsake you. And as you look at these, these elements that represent his broken body and his shed blood, see what you cost him. This is what you cost him. See how valuable you are to him through the cross. This represents that. Now, just take a moment and worship him. Just in your heart. Before you and God, God, thank you, thank you, thank you that my life is secure, that you are my shield, you are my great reward. I have never found more satisfaction than in knowing you. You are the source of life, unlike I've ever experienced before. God, I want to know you, I want to walk in you, I want to put on display greater faith in you. Lord, bring a calming to my heart and to my spirit. Transform my life. Let me live for your glory by finding my deepest satisfaction in you. Paul writes, 11th chapter, 1 Corinthians, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat together. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes let's drink together god we are we are overtaken by your love this morning we thank you for that your perfect love chases away the worry the anxiety the fear so help us to become more and more perfected in your love in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Stand with me, if you would, please, next weekend. Genesis 32, wrestling with God. We've got to wrestle this stuff down into our heart. How do we do that? How do we get this deeper into our heart? So my blessing for you here this morning is Psalm 9, 9 through 10. The Lord is a refuge for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know his name will trust in him. Get to know his name. Get to know his character. Name represents character. So spend time with him. I pray that you will spend time with him this next week. And as you get to know him... You will trust in him. You can't help but trust in him because this is what it says. He has never forsaken those who seek him. So seek him with all of your heart and you will find him and you will be greatly rewarded. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. God bless you. Don't forget, if you want to get baptized here in a few weeks, we'll have a class right up here to my left, your right. And we'd love to chat with you. It'll be about a 10-minute class. God bless you.